As a political theorist, Mark Steers examines the history of radical political thought and political protest. In this podcast, Dr. Steers talks about the importance of political theory and describes some of the radical political movements of Britain and the United States. What interested you in politics? I was brought up in South Wales in the 1970s, uh, and South Wales had always had a long political tradition, um, especially a radical political tradition, a tradition steeped in the British Labour Party and in the Labour movement generally. And I think the first moment I was interested in politics was when I was a very young child, probably six or seven, and my mum took me to the, see the doctor. And as we were walking to the doctor, she explained the principles of the British National Health Service, which were uh, free at the point of use, uh, funded through general taxation, and therefore available to everyone independent of their, of their background. And this seemed to me like a tremendously good idea at the time, especially in contrast to our vet, uh, who would only see our dog when we had enough money to pay them to do it. Uh, and I remember being incredibly pleased that I could go and see the doctor uh, rather than have to go to see the vet um, because the services would always be provided for me. And my mum at the point, that point said that this is what politics is all about and I think it really infected me ever, ever since and I uh, became involved in political activity from you know, as soon as I was old enough to join a political organisation, I guess. And why politics at Oxford? I then was very lucky. I, I went to a state sixth form school in South Wales and we had a fantastic history teacher who arranged for us to come up to Oxford for the day. And I wrote a speculative letter to Brian Harrison, who was then the politics tutor at Corpus Christi College. And Brian very graciously let me come to see him. And we had an hour and a half chatting about politics, and politics especially in South Wales, which was an area he was interested in. Uh, And it was a tremendous, it was probably the most exciting academic hour and a half I've ever spent uh, but certainly was up, uh, up until that point uh, and Brian said why don't you apply to do politics at Oxford and really it never occurred to me that I might do that before um, but having had such a great time and a great visit uh, I was desperate to do it uh, and put the application in the next year. Were you already heavily engaged in politics by that point? Yes I mean I, I, more as an observer than as an activist and I think I've always been an observer which is probably why I ended up being an academic rather than a politician. Uh, I would always go to meetings and uh, and read the newspapers and see what was going on, especially in local protests and local campaigns. Um, but I was never very much of a front-line political activist. I think I was always liked to stay behind the scenes and see what was going on and kind of dissect the organisation, if you like, rather than play a, an active and leading role in it. Would you encourage someone to come and study politics? Oh, it's a fantastic degree here in Oxford, and, it, and it's, I, from, to my mind, of course I would say this, it's the best place in the world to study politics. We've got a huge political tradition uh, a fantastic uh, department, but also it, it, the whole place just breathes politics. It's the kind of place where, as you arrive as an 18-year-old, uh, you can talk about politics for 24 hours, both about local politics and about national politics or international politics. So it, it really is in the fabric of the, of the buildings, if you like. Um, and so, yeah, my, my students have, a, I hope at least, a fantastic time uh, thinking, thinking about politics and, and beginning political careers as well. And your own area of research is... Political theory. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I'm a I'm a historian of political thought and a contemporary political theorist, um, primarily interested in radical politics and democratic politics, uh, with a, a particular interest in the United States. And what is political theory in contrast to scientific theory? Yeah, that's a that's the crucial question that students always ask. I think is that you know, what is this subfield which we call political theory? And I guess it began as a, as a part of philosophy rather than as a part of the study of politics. So it's so asking the big questions such as, you know, what is justice? How ought a political society to be constructed? You know, why do we have democratic rights to vote? 
what are the limits of state action? How much freedom of expression should there be? There's kind of moral questions, if you like, about politics are what we tend to study in political theory. And I always say to the students that it's, it, it's about how you'd like the world to be rather than about describing the world as it currently is. And specifically radical political theories. Yes, I've, I've always had an interest in those people who have a, you know, kind of dramatic reforming agenda, if you like. So it can be radical on the left or radical on the right or environmental politics or gender politics or sexual orientation politics. But my interest has always been in those people who long for dramatic change uh, and who try to develop arguments to explain why the change should be that dramatic. Um, of course, there are lots of you know, very able and committed political theorists who look at much more uh, sort of incremental changes, smaller scale changes, and who, who generally like the structure of the political world that we inhabit uh, and seek to change things more moderately. Uh, and there is some very subtle and thoughtful work in that vein too, but my interest has always been on the, on the extremes, if you like, uh, on those people who seek to you know, dramatically reform the system in which we live. Are there common questions in radical political theory? So, um, I think there, there are common questions, although the details shift from generation to generation. Um, I think the biggest common question is what gives us the right to change the world in the way that we see fit. Uh, most radicals have a very strong vision of some sort. So, you know, you probably know environmental radicals who would really like to reshape the nature of our everyday life in order to protect the environment more uh, successfully. Um, and they have a very strong agenda, which they seek in some sense to impose upon other people. And I think one of the great challenges to radical political theory is trying to understand what gives us the right to impose our vision on others, even when those others might you know, desperately resist that vision. Um, so small on the environmental issue a small question would be things like environmental taxes you know, why should everybody have to pay these environmental levies just because we are committed to the idea that the environment needs it shouldn't we have to work in persuading people to change their lives more voluntarily so i think radical political theory always has to grapple with that question which is once we've got our vision why is it okay for us to impose that vision on other people even if they don't share it themselves you mentioned one the environmental radicals what other major radical movements have you studied? I began really with an interest in labour, um, organised labour, trade union movement. Um, I'm still interested in studying movements for what's called the living wage, which is a, in a sense a minimum wage movement, both in the United States and in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm also interested, have always been interested in feminist movements and movements for, uh, for gay rights and for lesbian rights. Um, so I think anything really which comes with a social movement attached has been the kind of political theory I've been interested in. So if you look back over the course of the last 60 or 70 years, you've had these great reforming moments and you've had groups of people who really have mobilised behind ideas. And it's those kinds of ideas that I'm interested in. So what is it that can excite that amount of attention and get people to take to the streets, if you like, uh, in order to forward those ideas and, and, to, and to fight for them? Um, the ideas, in some sense, as I say, change over time, but the process of radical politics remains rather, rather constant in that sense. Some of the examples you've cited tend to be on the left. Mm. Have you looked at any on the right? Yes, I mean, a, a, that's a, a constant challenge in a sense, is that can you, can you have a kind of radical politics of the right? Uh, and in the past, people would have been sceptical about that notion because they would have understood the political right to largely be about maintaining the status quo. That's why they're called conservatives, after all. Um, but increasingly in the last 20 years, I think we've, we've come to identify a radical right, especially in American politics, um, following closely the current 
presidential election, for example, and it's clear that the evangelical movement in the right uh, right wing of the Republican Party has been a kind of radical movement uh, for the last two decades or so, and has increasingly influenced the direction of public policy. Um, and those, therefore, that movement throws up similar kinds of questions. I think um, you see the debate over abortion being a particular important example, but also uh, movements for gun rights, for maintaining the rights to bear arms in the United States. That has also been political movements in that regard, um, which I've also had a, had a look at. And, and constantly, the desire I think is to compare the movements of the left and the movements of the right, and to see commonalities and differences between them. Do these radical movements tend to heavily influence policymakers? Yes, I, again, I think that the, it changes with the times. There are moments, I think, radical moments. And one of the most interesting things to examine as a political theorist is what brings those moments to the fore. So we all have in our minds a kind of caricature of the 1960s or the late 1960s as one of those radical moments uh, when all sorts of movements seem to have you know, the ears of policymakers across the world. Um, I think the radical right in the United States is an example of that from the 1980s. The early years of the Reagan administration are a moment when, for the first time really, the Republican Party began to listen to these sorts of radical right-wing organisations. Perhaps we're now beginning another kind of movement um, with regards to the environmental movements that I talked uh, a while ago. Uh, Certainly the feminist organisations and gay rights organisations of the 1970s, when they first emerged, were largely ignored or often caricatured or critiqued in the media, but have had a significant impact on the way in which our public policy has developed in the 20 or so years since then. So often I think you do see this lag. You see a a radical movement arrive, sort of blasts onto the scene, if you like. It has a lot of hostile reception. And then over time, its message becomes much more accepted, much more part of the mainstream as as people in the movement develop their political power and their political prestige. Uh, And then over time, it becomes much more established. So could a radical political movement kind of smolder in the background until it reached a, a tipping point or a seminal event? I think that's a, a very nice way of putting it. My, my senior colleague in Oxford, Jerry Cohen, the professor at All Souls, has this phrase he calls, keep the fires burning. So he says, if you're a radical and you think that no one's listening to you, you've just got to keep on going, as you say, smouldering in the background, because there may well become a moment when your small fire becomes a, a great big fire and can take over the political world. And Jerry's example is often of the neo, so-called neoliberal economists or the free market economists, people like um, von, ha- von Hayek, who in the 1940s and 1950s were largely ignored as especially Western Europe developed large-scale welfare states. You had these free market economists saying this was the wrong thing to do. Nobody listened to them. No, everyone thought they were crackpots. But they kept on plunging away, writing their books, forming their organisations. And then bang, in the late 1970s, when the welfare state hits trouble, uh, people start responding to the ideas that they've developed. Uh, and then they become, in some sense, the new mainstream. And that's that process that, that Jerry Cohen calls keep the fires burning, the idea that if you've got a radical commitment uh, and you don't think anyone's listening, often the best thing to do is just keep on plugging away uh, in the hope that something will bring the moment to pass. So is it inevitable that a, such a movement would become the status quo and then be challenged by a successive movement? I think, I think inevitable is probably too strong. I think there are some movements which just have their day uh, and, and the embers die away. They don't, they, the conflagration doesn't come, the big fire doesn't come. Uh, so I do think there are some movements which just, and that's one of the funny things to study as a student, is movements who seem as if they're on the brink of success and then just filter away into nothing. So I think that's a, a, just as common a response. 
Um, but many movements do take the path that you, you suggest, that they become part of the mainstream, they become the established truth, the established order, and then after a few generations, those truths become questioned again by, by new and successive ideas. Um, and I've certainly seen that in, you know, in my own lifetime engaged in British politics. So in contemporary British politics, has the move to single-issue politics had an effect on radical movements? It does seem to. Um, I, I'd have to ask my sociology colleagues to, to tell you for, for the truth, for the fact of the matter, if you like. But in my own observation, it does seem that, that we now do seem to do politics in a much more single-issue way than we did in the past. So my, my undergraduate students, you know, I've got eager 19 or 20-year-olds who, who get involved in politics and who come to me for advice very nicely to ask what they should be doing. They are all interested in individual issue organisations. Or if they're not in, interested in individual issues, then they're small clusters of issues. Very, very few of them are active in the political parties. And most of them are deeply sceptical about party politics. And that is a big change in the last 20 or 30 years, I think, in, certainly in the United Kingdom. In the United States, it might be that political parties are a little bit more all-encompassing, um, partly because there is no you know, formal existing party machine outside an election period, if you like. And so people can drift in and out of party politics. And we've obviously seen that with the Obama phenomenon. Lots of people who would have been involved in single issues have become involved in the Democratic Party as a result of this candidacy. But we have less of that, I think, in the United Kingdom. We have more established long-term parties and people become rather sceptical and rather tired of them and drift into individual causes in their place. So not only differences in party machinery, are there differences in how these radical movements operate in the US and the UK? I, I think that tendency has been in the last few years for the Americans to innovate and for the British to follow. Uh, so we've certainly seen that with regards to the use of, of the internet as an organising tool. Um, so the radical organisation moveon.org in the United States began using email and using websites and using blogs as a way of mobilising political activity. The radical right has also done that. There are more conservative blogs in the United States than there are liberal or radical, you know, left-wing radical blogs. And so you've seen that kind of new medium being used by radical organisations in order to spread their message and to mobilise their supporters. And increasingly we see those kinds of initiatives then copied and used and adopted and adapted in, in the United Kingdom too. That aside, I think the bigger tendency, the bigger difference, is that courts play a larger role in politics in America than they do in Britain, um, largely because of institutional questions regarding the place of the Supreme Court in the American political system. And so often you have single-issue groups mobilising in judicial cases or mobilising for judicial appointments in the United States. And that simply doesn't exist in, in the UK. All of politics here is parliamentary. And so, so political action tends to be geared towards lobbying individual members of parliament uh, or, in, or lobbying individual government ministries. And the legal aspect doesn't play that large a role. And that's an institutional fact which will just stay like this for, for the foreseeable future, I think. You mentioned lobbying in, in members of parliament. Do uh, radical left and radical right lobby their opposites in Parliament? <laughs> uh, well, you do see individuals who take strange positions uh, or positions you might not expect on individual issues. So the, the most successful radical left or right lobbyist will always try and pinpoint somebody in the opposite side who has a particular weakness for a particular issue. And you'll see that... I mean, abortion is the obvious example in, in American politics, where there are fairly standard left-right ideological splits on the abortion issue. But there are individuals who, for their own religious 
convictions or their own personal convictions will stand in different places with regards to that issue. And a successful lobby group will work out who those individuals are and, and make a beeline for them. So it certainly does happen. But the tendency, I think, for most lobbying is try first to firm up the people that you imagine will be on your side and get them to really commit to the cause and to push it forward. It tends to be more about mobilising than it does about persuading. And moving on, Mm. but connected to these movements, you've also examined political protest. Mm -hmm. That's right. I mean, it comes back to the interest I sketched at the start of the discussion, really, which is what is it that we're allowed to do as citizens in order to change the laws of the land in which we live? And um, most of us take it as read that we should be able to express our political views openly, that we should be able to vote in elections, that we should be able to write to our members of parliament. The kind of fuzzy territory, if you like, is uh, that of direct action protest, which takes you up to violent rebellion. So most of us are, most Democrats at least, are of the view that you know, one shouldn't be allowed to use violence in securing your own political goals, that it's wrong to intimidate people through actual threats or physical harm. But there is, I think, an interesting space between, on the one hand, freedom of expression, and on the other hand, violent rebellion. Uh, and that's this kind of space for political protest. And, and a lot of my recent work has been trying to work out what I think about uh, the limits of acceptable action in that domain, if you like. Have you been charting that in a historical way? I have, yes. I've just finished a, a book on the, on the American left, uh, which tries to examine how attitudes to this space of protesting action have shifted across the course of the 20th century in the United States. How have they shifted? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. Um, I think that there's no clear pattern. There's not, I started, when I started writing the book, I expected to see a sort of beginning-of-the-century faith in protest, which, with various bobs over time, declines, has its kind of last hurrah, if you like, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and then peters out to, to the moment that we are in today. I think that the actual story is more complicated than that, uh, it turned out, that there are distinctive moments when people across the political spectrum uh, are very sympathetic to direct action political protest. And then there are moments when people are much more intimidated by such protests and seek to restrain it and hold it back. So what I try to do in the book is to trace the contours of those developments, if you like, and to try to explain what causes these moments of explosive protesting activity and then what causes these moments of decline and of the restraint of protest. So it's contextual factors like being at war or economic slowdown? Uh, you, you could have done it before me. Yes, exactly. War, war seems to be a crucial factor. But the periods after the First World War and after the Second World War are the most... Oh, so the, let's put it another way. They're the least likely to be sympathetic to protesting action. So the, the most restrained moments in time appear to be from around about 1918 to around about 1924, and then again from around about 1945 to around about 1955. Um, and it does seem that the experience of violent conflict in an international war um, makes people much more sceptical about engaging in controversial direct action politics in their domestic arena and people become much fonder at that point of more conciliatory compromise driven um, kind of quieter forms of political action and then when the memory of war fades bang uh, so you get a return to the more dramatic forms of, of politics what about the contemporary perception of protest that's shifting quite quickly i think that we the period before 2001 
her safe room around about 1997 to 2001, saw, I think, an explosion of protest again, the anti-globalisation protests. People might remember the protests in Seattle, um, where the um, troops came out onto the street to stop the protesters from um, picketing the IMF and World Bank meetings. And the same happened in Genoa and in Prague. I think September the 11th had a significant impact upon that, and we're back to the phenomenon I've just described, that being immediately at war made people much more worried and more sceptical about protesting activity. There was, of course, large-scale protest about the uh, invasion of Iraq, but it tended to be very peaceful and relatively quiet, in a sense, in big demonstrations, but not with much muscle. I think that that moment might have begun to have passed and and that we might be at the beginning of a return to a slightly more confrontational style of protesting politics. I think, especially in the United States, you see, and it may turn out to be misguided, but you see worries about the war on terror increasing um, and you see that people are beginning to take more dramatic forms of action in in protest. And I think that we might be returning to... situation relatively similar to the one that we were in prior to September the 11th. The jury's obviously out on that, we're yet to be clear, but but I think the period of absolute quietude which followed September the 11th is beginning to pass. What about the state's responses? It's always very difficult for the states to know how to respond in these moments, because an overly heavy-handed response clearly enrages the moderate population and can increase the sympathy for political protesters. On the other hand, too indulgent a response tends to encourage the protesters to grow in numbers and to come out onto the streets. So if you were an agent of the state interested in reducing the possibilities of political protest, I think getting that balance right is extremely important. We've seen moments when that works well and moments when that works badly, both in recent history and in the past. But that must be, if, if you're interested in policing or in criminology, that must be one of the most interesting areas to work in, I think. You mentioned moderates. I presume they're the, the larger portion of the population. So are the protesters are really minimal number of the population? Well, they, they shift, I think. I mean, um, my own hunch on this is that most of the populations, both in Britain and in the United States, have relatively firmly held and relatively fixed ideological views, which may be uh, more centrist than the political extremes, um, but which nonetheless have an ideological core to them. So most Americans that you meet will know whether they're a Democrat or a Republican at heart. Then I think there are the people who are the genuine moderates, who are these swing voters, if you like, who are sat in the middle, uh, who don't know where they are, uh, or may switch depending on what issue is being discussed. The political protesters tend to be, as you say, on on the extremes uh, of both sides, but their tactics don't necessarily just have to appeal uh, to their own source or to their own kind. Uh, They can, and their aim always is, to make people think anew about the particular issue that they're exposing. And as I have mentioned at the start, they tend to have this long time frame. So most protesters tend to think, we might be unpopular now, but if we get our issue aired, we might win popularity in the future. Gay rights, I think, is a perfect example of that. Very, very few people wanted to talk about gay rights in the United States in the early 1970s. Uh, And so the gay rights movement was extremely controversial, flamboyant, confrontational, tried to get the issue simply onto the agenda. Um, At the time, people thought that would alienate the moderates. Of course, the protesters themselves believed it's not about alienating the moderates now. It's about getting the issue discussed so that we can win the moderates in the future. 
And one has to say that in many ways that strategy has proven to be successful. If it hadn't been for people taking those risks at an earlier stage, willing to be unpopular, if you like, it's very unlikely that the agenda would have been set in the way that it was set. Very unlikely that the the moderates would have shifted eventually in the way that they appear to have done so. Are there any movements that are smouldering at the moment that Uh, you think will come to the fore? I think there are two great big movements, really, which are probably slightly more than smouldering, but which will have a significant impact in the in the next two decades. Um, one is the animal rights movement, which we've seen quite a lot of here in Oxford. Um, and the other is the, the movements, a cluster of movements, if you like, for disability rights, especially rights for the, well, for the physically and the mentally disabled. And I think that mainstream politics has done relatively little to listen to either of those two movements. Uh, and I think that those two movements will use you know, the disgruntlement that they undoubtedly feel uh, to exert significant pressure on the political process in the years to come. The media gives us the perception that young people are apathetic about politics. Surely that's a, a death knell for radical movements. Yes, indeed. And uh, I, I think that there certainly has been, in the last 15 years, a, a period uh, when most uh, young people were sceptical or distanced from the political process. I think both myself and most of my colleagues would agree that 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 period does seem to have turned. And I I think the experience of September the 11th, the war on terror, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, environmental degradation, and now, of course, economic problems uh, across the world, the banking crisis, the credit crunch, have reinitiated political debate amongst all sections of the population, including young people. And I certainly see in the students that I teach on a daily basis, uh, levels of enthusiasm for talking about really quite controversial political ideas have dramatically increased in the last two, three years. And you would say it's important to continue to talk about these controversial issues? I think it's the only way that we hope to come to answers. You know, I'm, I'm always struck, and I remember very well when I was a, a student studying the 1920s and 1930s, uh, which was a time, as you know, of great economic turmoil across the developed world. And the only way that we got out of those ter- that turmoil was talking about difficult ideas, exposing the fascists and the communists for what they were and for saying for, that these ideas were ill-grounded, uh, morally reprehensible and, and practically disastrous, and for developing alternatives of our own. Um, the reception that Keynesian economic ideas, for example, received in the late 1920s, initially of great scepticism, uh, and yet these were the ideas which got us out of the Depression and built the world anew after the Second World War. Um, unless we have the kinds of places like universities where we can discuss these ideas, thrash them out, work them out, debate them, identify which ones are good and identify which ones are bad, then, then we won't be able to make progress in our political lives together. From your own experience of studying radical movements, are you of the opinion it has to be informed, respectful debates, or is there a place for violent protests? I always say to, to students that the ideal debate is a no-holds-barred argument infused with respect. Uh, so the best tutorial discussions are always those discussions where people will really push their own arguments, interrogate the arguments of others, try and you know, begin from a scratch, and, uh, and don't seek easy consensus. You know, there's no point having a political discussion where all you're trying to do is to make your opponent feel good about themselves, because then you don't get the kind of idea progress that I'm looking for. On the other hand, I think you're absolutely right that neither do you want people to be intimidated uh, or to be led in a political direction purely out of fear, and the difficulty with violence is always precisely of that sort. 
Um, you don't convert people to causes uh, by threatening them or by intimidating them. You convert them to causes by having arguments with them, by persuading them in various ways. That persuasion doesn't, as I say, have to be polite or easy or conciliatory. Uh, it can be vigorous, um, but nonetheless it shouldn't be intimidatory or threatening. Stepping back from all of the more applied politics, what's the point of studying this? <laughs> I think that oh, it's fun, uh, is the first answer. Um, I think that we all, most of us at least, uh, have moments in the day when we think, what would we like the world to look like? You know, if we were in charge, if we were writing the Constitution anew, uh, or if we were president for the day, uh, what, was the, what is the reform, the single reform that we'd like to put in place? And I think my job is to try and make people think about that more clearly, more precisely, more accurately than they otherwise would do. So the people who come to Oxford to study with me uh, get the opportunity to do that full time. Uh, but they then go out into the world and uh, hopefully use the expertise they developed, the answers that they've shaped for themselves in political debate and in political exchange for the years to come. And so that's, that's the goal, I think, in a way, is, that, is to take the everyday sense that we really ought to make the world a better place and to turn it to something which is more precise, is better grounded both in empirical, practical evidence and in philosophical clarity, uh, and then to move on from there.